episode of the Pediatric Orthopedic Podcast brought to you by POSNA. Uh, I am your quarterback uh, for this month's episode, Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. Uh, we're joined with a very special guest, uh, Dr. Muharram Yazici, uh, all the way from uh, Turkey, joining us. Uh, welcome, Dr. Yazici. Thank you. Thank you for this invitation. I'm so happy and honored to be part of this podcast. Well, you are actually our first overseas guest. We've had a few Canadians uh, kind of breach, or broaching the international market a little bit, but uh, our first to where you've had to navigate a significant time change. So thank you again for being with us. I'll get into a little bit of a detailed bio of Dr. Zichi later, but I want to introduce my other hosts. Uh, joining us today, we have uh, Carter. Carter, how's it going? Hey, everyone. All good down here in New Orleans. Uh, no hurricanes at the moment. Dr. Yazici, thank you so much for joining us. And Josh Holt from Iowa. Yes. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone's doing well. Iowa City is great. Third team in the country. Big showdown this weekend with Penn State. So hope everyone can tune in. And I think uh, medicine is taking a break to football up in, uh, up in Iowa right now. And Julia, unfortunately, can't be with us. Uh, she actually is working this morning, uh, unlike the rest of us. Um, so a few, a few tidbits uh, as my normal segment, just to update about the podcast. Uh, we have about 900 listens for most of the 2021 episodes, which to me means we're getting probably a few more subscribers and a lot of people who are coming on or re-listening to those old episodes. I do want to crown uh, Dr. Todd Milbrandt as the reigning champion of the most listened to guests so far. I think he's got 960 uh, listens and downloads to his episode when I last checked. So congratulations, Dr. Milbrandt, and uh, really throwing down the gauntlet here for our future guests. So Dr. Yazici, your challenge is because I looked it up and there are 180 listens from the country of Turkey. And so you must spread the podcast far and wide and <laughs> bring those numbers. Wow. Wow. And first of all, it's a great honor uh, to be the guest of this pod podcast of the POSDA, but also this is something interesting and they giving me some extra stress to be the first real OUS guest. And also this is a really challenge when you are articulating the number of the listen I mean, listener in the previous podcast, I mean, I have some sweats in my back and hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll try to do my best. Uh, you will be fantastic. Um, and I did want to highlight, since we kind of have a little bit of international flavor to this episode, um, some of the other international trends. We've got over 1,000 downloads from Great Britain, which is the next leading country outside of the U.S. Uh, Canada, India, and Brazil are rounding out the top five. Um, and we also have an article we're highlighting from France uh, uh, today, and there's 41 listens only from France. So I'd like the French to uh, recognize we are, we are highlighting your research, <laughs> and uh, you just got to show up and listen. Um, as always, email us any feedback uh, to pedorthopodcast at gmail.com or tweet me and Carter. And then before we get into the, the main event, um, Carter had issued uh, an invitation to uh, discuss uh, vitamin D as part of our discussion with Dr. Beck from two months ago. And Carter, did you have any follow up on responses we got from that? I did. I heard from a uh, a friend and a friend of the podcast, previous guest, Cheryl Lawing, who uh, is uh, down in Tampa at the Shriners Hospital there. And uh, she told us that, let's see, let me find the, the crux of this email, that she has not seen any overdoses of vitamin D, but she did have a funny vitamin D story. She had a 12-year-old boy with diaphyseal, tibi uh, diaphyseal tibial fracture, treated non-op, slow to heal, started uh, with vitamin D in the low 20s and prescribed 4,000 units a day. And after continued failure to consolidate, she rechecked the vitamin D around eight weeks and it was 155. Um, after reading that, I checked our own hospital's grading system and over 150 is, is the toxic level here. And um, she said that the patient had apparently been eating the gummies like they were actual gummy bears and going through bottles and bottles and the family wasn't sure how much he was taking daily. 
he went and saw endocrinology, um, but since he had no symptoms, they felt that everything would be fine if he just stopped taking the vitamin D. So uh, she concluded it went to show that you can have an impressively high vitamin D and not have symptoms or toxicity. So thank you, Cheryl, for, uh, for the message and the amusement. It, it does make me feel more comfortable prescribing those high doses, um, even when you're not necessarily monitoring their levels. So I, I do appreciate the anecdote. Um, more research to come. One last announcement to make this month before we move on. There will be a high yield OITE study webinar, which is put on by the POSNA Resident Communications Committee. This is for all our resident learners out there who are thinking about the OITE this upcoming month and want to master the pediatric uh, knowledge base, uh, which makes up about 14% of the test. So uh, if you're interested, um, you can find links to that on our show notes, and you'll also find it uh, on my social media as well. So take a look if you're interested. All right. Uh, so let's let's get into it uh, with Dr. Zichi. We'll we'll give our headline article for this month. Um, so once again, Muharam Zichi, he is the SRS immediate past president, just handed over the reins this last month. Um, so 2020 to 2021. He's also a previous uh, president of the European Pediatric Orthopedic Society, 2012 to 2013. He's a founding member of the Growing Spine Study Group and then sits on the board of trustees of the Pediatric uh, Spine Foundation, which runs now the PSSG. Uh, he's on the editorial board or is a reviewer for over 12 journals, which is a ton of work and very impressive, and then uh, has authored uh, hundreds of articles, uh, two books, and many chapters to his name. Um, one thing I don't know about you, Dr. Izichi, is I don't know much about your personal life, and I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, your family and interests outside of medicine, if you would care to enlighten us. Yeah, thank you, Craig. That's a very nice introduction. When I finished my residency, uh, I worked with two different small-sized universities in the outside of the Ankara, is a relatively small-sized uh, cities, but during that years, I had a chance to uh, come to United States, Kansas City, for a research fellowship. I did my research fellowship with, uh, under the mentorship of late Mark Asher. This year was this, probably is the most important year of my career, not only scientifically, but also socially, because I believe this wasn't the greatest chance of mine and all my academic career to work with Mark Asher, to know Mark Asher. I don't know, did you have a chance to meet him? Unfortunately, he passed away three years ago. He was an unbelievable person. I mean, I met many, many great surgeons, great scientists, great researchers, but in terms of personality, humanity and many other aspects. He was really, really great person and it impressed me uh, a lot. And I learned a lot from him, not only spine, but also work ethics, uh, work discipline, many other things. That's why I'm so uh, appreciated uh, for this year I spent with Mark Asher. And then back to home, the spine is my main interest, is the mind focus area, especially early onset scoliosis. But I'm still doing lots of non-spine pediatric uh, things like cerebral palsy, DBH, or 30s, all kind of mostly lower extremity um, the problems. Upper extremity is just beyond of my scope. Thank you. Appreciate that. I think that, um, you know, given that intro, you'll have a lot of uh, a lot of interesting insights for us regarding those conditions, and we're going to talk about more than just spine today. Um, and so it'll be great to have uh, have your thoughts on that. Um, can I ask about uh, interests outside of medicine? What you, outside of your career? What sort of things are you interested in? And um, you know, maybe let me know a little bit about your family. Yeah, uh, the, my wife uh, she is dentist. Uh, she was the the dean of the faculty, but now just she just uh, finished uh, her term. And she is still working in the university as a professor of dentistry. And I have two children. Uh, the older one is my daughter, just finished the, the business school. And now she is in the, at Barcelona, Spain, Spain for mastership. 
And my right. son uh, is the younger one, as the now in 17, is the last grade of high school. He is uh, really working hard to get an, uh, the acceptance from the university. He is looking to uh, study in medicine, but medicine is not only his not only uh, interest, also he's very social. Uh, the person, his musician. I don't know. I'm very uh, enthusiastic to see what's going on for him because he's a very critical uh, stage. You mentioned a little bit about your son uh, playing music. I was going to ask. Um, it's very common uh, here when uh, when we're operating. Our nurses like to play music, and I was wondering. Uh, if you do the same uh, in your operating theaters in Turkey, and uh, what sort of music uh, you would listen to on a typical uh, on a typical day in the OR? If I'm doing uh, the easy and the simple and routine things, all kind of music. Mostly, uh, I mean, classical music or some popular music. I like to listen, uh, but in the serious uh, cases, the very tough cases. Uh, I, I'm as a surgeon, as a, a chief surgeon, as the leader of the room, as the boss of the, uh, the that OR. I don't allow to, uh, I mean, to any any kind of music. I really want to have exact silence. That's my maybe obsession. Yeah. I actually think that's a good precedent to set for when to set the tone. I think it'd be yeah. it's a change in my OR, but there are times when uh, you're not supposed to enjoy yourself, and everyone needs to focus on what they're doing for the best care of the patient. I, I completely understand. Definitely, they um, shouldn't be distracted. Exactly. Well, uh, speaking of uh, tense spine surgeries and three column osteotomies, that's a great segue into uh, the study that we wanted to highlight this month. So the title of this study is Clinical Outcomes of Three-Column Osteotomies at Growing Rod Graduation. This is in this month's JPO, and it is out of uh, Dr. Yazici's Center in Ankara, Turkey. And so the purpose of this study was to evaluate clinical outcomes of three-column osteotomies at Growing Rod Graduation. Uh, it's a retrospective review of patients who underwent uh, revision, posterior spinal fusion, uh, following Growing Rod treatment. Uh, after reviewing all of the cases, he found eight patients that met the criteria of uh, that scenario and have undergone three-column osteotomies during that revision procedure. Um, he noted significant improvements in scoliosis and coronal balance measurements, so significant deformity correction, um, some small changes in height uh, that weren't statistically significant, um, but I do want to highlight some of the corrective changes because I do think that they uh, are worth uh, pointing out and how they contrast to our prior studies. So he had some correction of the curve uh, mean of 66 degrees pre-op to 39 degrees post-op. It's a 41% uh, degree of correction, which uh, for anyone who's uh, done these surgeries, you know how difficult it is to get correction. And the published studies show a range of you know low teens um, on the percent correction. Um, complications are uh, fairly um, minor. Um, and that's, I think, the most, um, I want to say, encouraging part about this study. Um, six complications, four of them were um, clavandendo grade one, meaning they didn't change care. Some neuromonitoring alerts, which resolved prior to closure. Uh, there were two of those. Um, one superficial infection treated with antibiotics. And then there was only one that required reoperation or was a, a major complication. This was additional surgery for, um, sounds like some worsening deformity where um, fixation was only obtained in one iliac wing uh, originally, and then uh, this was gone, went back and revised. Of course, the follow-up is only about one year, and so you guys recognize in your paper that certainly later complications can uh, increase the rate, but the initial uh, complication profile seems very acceptable for this procedure. So the takeaway that your group had is that the three-column osteotomy can effectively be used to overcome spine stiffness during posterior spinal fusion on patients who have already undergone um, growing rod treatment. And uh, I had a few questions. I wanted to ask, you know, before we talk about this specific study, I wanted to ask about uh, kind of your decision um, and to set the stage for the listeners. Um, you know, we have a lot of patients with early onset scoliosis who undergo you know, growth-friendly or distraction-based growing rod treatment. Um, and there comes a time when they often are converted to a posterior spinal fusion. So I wanted to ask, 
Um, first of all, when do you decide that they've had enough growth-friendly treatment and it's time to go to a fusion? And then how do you decide which ones actually need a fusion versus which ones just keep their traditional growing rods and ride that out? Great, thank you. It's a great summary. It's, a, it's better than uh, me. I mean, you just summarized it. My words is perfectly, thanks, Greg. First of all, I'd like to start one, uh, to highlight one case, is growth-friendly uh, instrumentation or growth-friendly techniques looks like some, it's a misnomer because uh, any kind of instrumentation or implantation around the, I mean, for the ch uh, children is especially in the early onset uh, ages, uh, early onset scoliosis ages, meaning the patients younger than 10 uh, shouldn't be friendly for the spine. But uh, the growth sparing, growth preserving, uh, growth friendly, all of them are interchangeably used, but uh, the instrumentation, regardless the type of the technique, Sheila, Vapture, extraction based instrumentation, and the, after the multiple repetitive lengthening procedures, spine becomes more stiff and spine uh, becomes more scarred. I'll probably start in the last part of your question. How do you, how do I decide this is enough? We have to stop the lengthening. And then probably it's a good idea to come back to which patients are good candidates for three column osteotomies. If you uh, look at the current graduation methods, probably we have to um, address three different options. First, if the deformity in terms of size and the body, body shape, body picture, body image is acceptable limits. And if you don't have any significant uh, implant related complications, at least in the last year, this is the option one, uh, keep as is. Mm -hmm. Option two, uh, the removal of the growing implants and the replacing with the new ones, uh, plus or minus uh, posterior column osteotomies, plus or minus uh, to extension of instrumentation above and below. Scenario, uh, you have to look the uh, the main deformity size. If the deformity, I don't want to give in this some exact numbers, but probably it's over the 50s, close to 60s, and the kids and family are not happy with the, uh, the body image, the spine shape, you can do some uh, osteotomies, simply posterior column osteotomies, extend the instrumentation if it is needed, and uh, complete your procedure with the definitive fusion. Uh, the option three, uh, I don't know uh, whether you, you will uh, talk about this paper or not. We had a paper published in JBJS in 2017. This was the prospective study. Uh, we just enrolled in 10 patients, but one patient, uh, the, after the removal of the implant, the spine stayed straight. But in nine out of the 10, deformity progressed. And this was really, uh, I think, I mean, this is the interesting results. Uh, half of the glass is full and half of the glass is empty. Half of the glass is full, uh, even 10 years lengthening period, spine still has some mobility, some motion there. I mean, it's not totally fused. But in the bad news, empty part of the glass, uh, we have to do an extra surgery. Anyway, this wasn't the theoretically uh, the option. It's about 10 years ago. But today, I must say, this is not an option. Today, we have two options. We have to keep to the, uh, the growing road as is. Again, if deformity is an acceptable limit and no need to extension of the instrumentation, or if you want to get more or 
you, if you need to uh, address in the adjacent segment problems, you have to remove implant, replace with new one. Of course, you have to complete your procedure with fusion. Yeah, I, I actually recall um, reading that paper in fellowship uh, when it came out. I think Carter and Josh probably presented at pre-op conference um, and finding it uh, interesting. It's probably something that won't ever be repeated, but uh, made it very clear that removing implants at graduation is uh, not sustainable in the vast majority of cases. Um, so I, the prior studies on this revision, yeah. you know, revision posterior spinal fusion have mostly entertained either no osteotomies or posterior column only osteotomies. And having uh, done a number of these, I've tried both of those things and always been pretty underwhelmed with the amount of correction I get all, to the point now uh, where I just tell the families they're going to get essentially no correction. Um, and then if I get some, then we're all happy about it. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to ask if you've had a similar experience, and then I, I would project that that's probably what led you to doing more aggressive osteotomy. So I wanted to ask just about, about that process for you. Absolutely agree with you. I mean, the uh, growing rose graduation, I, I believe one of the difficult procedures uh, for the, the pediatric spine surgeons, because all the posterior elements, I mean, the posterior muscles and soft tissues, even subcutaneous tissues are scarred uh, because of uh, the multiple uh, previous uh, surgical intervention, because of uh, the keeping Im immobile, uh, that part of the spine over the year, because of a repetitive distraction can cause some microtrauma and ending up with the big fibrotic tissue. This is really difficult to get some flexibility, even you perform the trip uh, posterior column osteotomies. I mean, I'm not pessimistic uh, like you. And uh, the no correction, and it's not uh, it's not fair to say no correction, but the correction rate is significantly less than we can achieve uh, with the posterior instrumentation and fusion and nowadays in our technology and in our uh, skills. Uh, uh, this is the interesting paper. Uh, this is the first paper uh, about anti-column osteotomy for uh, growing growth graduation. I'm not defending to use it uh, in every case. This is very important. I have to highlight multiple times. This is the osteotomy. This is the technique should be reserved only limited, some selected group of patients. If you see the picture of the, the X-ray, standing X-ray of the patients, almost eight or nine centimeters off balance shift to the, the left side. This is, is really, really big problem. We have some patients like this. I don't know uh, what, why uh, this patient develops such a bizarre deformity, why the others uh, didn't. But I've seen at least and uh, probably less than uh, the uh, 10, but I've seen some, this type of patients. Looks like I'm in the Pisa tower. I mean, the spine is just leaned in the one side. There is no way to get back the spine rather than the three-column osteotomy. This mm -hmm. is the case. Of course, comparing the uh, simple posterior instrumentation fusion or simple posterior column osteotomy, uh, more complicated, more risky, and uh, demanding. And they also, uh, you didn't mention, but in the results section, we had this very significant uh, blood loss during the surgery. At least more than half of the patient, if I remember correctly, we had to stage because, I mean, the small size patient is the limited capacity of uh, the blood in their uh, vessels. And if you lose, it's about on the 1,000 cc and one liter blood and the, during the exposure and osteotomy, uh, it's not a good idea to uh, move forward. In those cases, is in the, one of the, uh, the stages of the surgery, if you can uh, the, keep the spine uh, stable with the temporary instrumentation, it's a good idea to uh, complete the surgery in the next step in the week after or days after. This is also the safest way. 
I wanted to ask about um, a couple things related to going into the anterior column. The first is that, you know, given that the posterior column only osteotomies seem to yield pretty modest results, um, my assumption is that there may be pretty extensive stiffness anteriorly. Are you seeing true like ankylosis of the anterior column? Is the disc fused over? Is it just exceedingly stiff uh, in that area? What, what are you finding when you go up there that you think is leading to, um, you know, the difficulty that uh, so many others are having with just addressing with posterior releases? Yeah, thank you. Uh, you are right. Uh, we have also another paper, they uh, published in JPO. This, this paper is not uh, the growing growth and the expansion thoracoplasty, uh, the use uh, performed by non-vector, but ribcage instrumentation. Even in the, uh, the ribcage instrumentation, rib-based instrumentation, uh, at the time of the graduation, we have seen some spontaneous bone formation on the anterior column. I mean, the, we have some nice uh, the CT scan pre-index surgery, all the disc space seen clear, but after the six, seven years, after multiple lengthening, we never touched the spine, either index surgery or uh, the lengthening procedure, but because of distraction, because of immobilization, spine is also diffused spontaneously, mm -hmm. not from posterior, also from anterior. Uh, the Amir Samdani and uh, friends from the uh, Philadelphia Shriners, they had, had a very similar experience. They have a paper about the vector graduates. They documented spontaneous spine fusion after multiple chest expansion. Anyway, chest expansion or uh, the spine uh, elongation or lengthening, it automatically stimulates bone formation, not only posterior, but also anterior. But again, Back to your questions, anterior column stiffness or anterior column spontaneous fusion, it's not a big deal for three-column osteotomy because you just uh, cut, just uh, destroy the continuation of the anterior column. This is the problem for posterior column osteotomy. Uh, very, very interesting stuff um, about the uh, spontaneous fusions there anteriorly. Um, I, did, I did just take a glance. For the listeners, uh, the osteotomy types performed were mostly Schwab type three or PSOs. In all but one case, one was a Schwab type uh, five, which is a what we would typically characterize a one level VCR. Um, so that's fantastic. Um, Carter, Josh, do you have any uh, further questions for Dr. Uh, uh, Yazichi? I was curious about uh, the two neuro uh signaling losses during the uh, procedures. Two of the complications were intraop neuro losses, no permanent deficits. And I was just wondering um, what you did in those cases. Did you have to sacrifice correction or come back just with uh, non-surgical stuff like the body temperature, et cetera? Yeah, and you just want, thank you for this question. In one case, if I remember correctly, just they lose the correction a little bit. I mean, sacrifice some of the correction, but the other case, uh, typically uh, uh, caused by kinking or buckling of, of the spinal cord. In that case, we just extend the osteotomy concave side more. We put in the cage, small cage, to elongate the concave side to get in a more balanced spine and to prevent the spinal cord buckling. Uh, but depends. I mean, if you have... Uh, some uh, room to uh, give up from the correction, a simple way just to uh, lose your uh, screw caps to, I mean, just in the uh, less correction would be good. But if you are insist to correct the deformity as much as possible, the other way to put in the cage in the concave side to elongate that part and then compress the convex side. It depends. Yeah, just a follow-up question. That was I was going to ask the same thing. If you lost signal during the exposure and during the actual osteotomies, which would be more concerning for a vascular phenomenon versus during closure of the osteotomies, which you'd worry about kinking or compression. So it sounds like probably more during the closure 
Uh, yeah, I mean, at least in my small series, both of them is uh, happened during the closure. But theoretically, you are right. It can be happen anytime. And the, of course, I mean, to make long story short, I just jump off the, I jumped the, to what we did. But of course, uh, we have a poster of the Mike Vitali's best practice guideline for neuromonitorization changes. We will follow the, if it has happened, not only growing growth graduation for all kinds of spine deformity. If it has happened, we meticulously follow the steps. Of course, we have to check uh, with the uh, monitor first. And then uh, the talk with the anesthesiologist, increase the blood pressure, check in the room temperature, many other things. Uh, but you're right. If all these neurologic events uh, happen uh, before your correction, your maneuver, of course, you have to consider some more medical reason. But if it's directly related to your manipulation, your correction, of course, the, the, you are the guilty. Uh, that's why you have to find the solution. You have to uh, solve the problem. A lot of really good insight there that you were able to enlighten us with just in a 20-minute conversation. So thank you very much. Um, gentlemen, let's go ahead and jump to some of our other articles. Uh, let me see. Carter, Josh, either of you want to uh, take over from here and bring up these other ones? Yeah, I'll kick things off if that's okay, because I might have to uh, slip away to get to the OR in just a little bit. Um, before I start, though, I, I do want to say, Dr. Yazici, in, in addition to a, a great article, uh, I think we all probably appreciated your hesitancy with the term growth-friendly. Um, everyone has their institutional biases, and we trained at a place together where um, if you use the term growth-friendly, there's probably one fellow a year who didn't know better and said growth-friendly, and it was like the room would get quiet and everyone would look at you. It was like in the sandlot, like, who's the great Bambino? And just was probably tumbleweed <laughs> would blow across the room. Um, all right, but to kick things off with the, uh, the lightning round, I've got three articles. Um, first up, out of last month's JBJS, uh, one out of San Diego, Speak of the Devil, uh, by Dr. Newton and crew looking at uh, growth and uh, curve correction with anterior spinal tethering. And they asked a few questions. First, does your, your growth, your height change correspond to the scoliosis change? And as you would expect, the answer was yes. Um, what I thought was really interesting and probably the biggest takeaway of the study is how different the spinal correction was for Sanders 2 and Sanders 3 patients. Um, so all the patients in the study were either Sanders 2 or 3, um, which made them either risk or 0 or 1. And um, why don't we go to Josh because he's the master of these, these questions and put him on the spot. So Josh, how, what kind of difference do you think you would see in a Sanders 2 versus a Sanders 3 patient with a, a spinal tether how, in terms of how quickly the, the curve corrects? Um, I'm going to say it corrects three times faster in a Sanders 3. Almost, yeah, about two and a half to uh, about two and a half times faster. Um, so the Sanders 2, well, in the Sanders 2, it corrects about two and a half times faster, 2.8 degrees, almost three degrees per level per year, where okay. versus 1.2, so almost, uh, you know, close to one versus close to three. Um, and then it was also interesting how long that change continued for. So in a Sanders two, you get about three years of correction. In a Sanders three, you get about two years of correction. So really valuable stuff and if, when you're planning the timing. There's obviously still a lot of work we need to do in terms of the timing of uh, anterior tethers, uh, but this study was a nice step towards understanding that and uh, planning when to do a tether. All right. Next up, the study that Craig alluded to out of France. Uh, this is JPJ, uh, JPO this month, and it's a study looking at uh, scoliosis in SMA patients. So um, maybe before we get into the conclusions, uh, Dr. Uh, Yazichi, can I ask how you guys tend to address SMA, what your sort of preferences are? Um, are, you, are these patients getting Nusinersen or Spinraza typically? First of all, uh, the, my country is somehow lucky because we uh, started to use Spinraza uh, earlier than the many European uh, countries. And the, also, the, my country is one of the countries in the world uh, that all the Spinraza expenses covered by the social insurance system. 
patient uh, shouldn't pay anything regardless the family have a good job or not because of the uh, under the age of 18 all the turkish children has a social security coverage and if the neurologist uh, decided to spinraza for those patients needed they can get it this is the one thing and also some patients recently uh, organizing a big uh, public campaign to collect the money to go to the United States for gene therapy. SMA1, uh, the patients, we didn't see in the past because unfortunately they passed away uh, before seeking orthopedic care. But now I'm seeing some SMA. I believe in my uh, list, I have now visited five or six SMA, all of them treated with the spinraza uh, from the early newborn period. But again, I, I didn't any, operate any of them, SMA1 till now, but I'm just planning. For SMA2, uh, it was a belief in the past, SMA as scoliosis, uh, stay flexible over the year. You don't need to be hurried, you don't need to be rushed to treat the deformity. You just simply keep in the brace or wheelchair modification and the planned surgery during the adolescence. But it's not true. I have many, many is meaning maybe 20 SMA patients with 180 degrees curve with very, very big, significant rigidity. That's why SMA curves shouldn't be weighted. I shouldn't wait until the, if the deformity progress and leading some uh, body collapse and some feeding problems and the, the pulmonary problems, we have to uh, address their deformity as well as possible. I mostly per perform in the magic MCGR, but also we have a paper in the JPO, published in JPO. We just develop an algorithm. Of course, the, just the 12 patients is not big group of the patients, but we developed an algorithm for SMA2 uh, for the growth-friendly, preserving, sparing uh, techniques. What we are doing, if the deformity is still at the reasonable size, 60-70, uh, we just check the flexibility under the general anesthesia on the old table. If the spine is, uh, with the traction film, if the spine comes into the stay, Huntington stable zone, is meaning uh, the two line um, starting from the sacroiliac joint up to uh, neck. If the spine is, comes to with the traction, comes with, uh, in the, the stable zone, we just simply perform double MCGR. I mean, the screws in the top, pelvic fixation at the bottom, and then keep it. In a group, group uh, the, the spine is too rigid, and even the traction. We cannot bring the spine in the midline. In that cases, I use the MCGR and modified Sheila together. MCGR in the concave side, but in the convex side, I put two, three screws at the apex to, uh, the, I mean, zero, to try to derotate or uh, push to the midline in the convex side to bring the spine as midline as possible. Uh, but in the convex side, I use the double rods or three, three rods uh, in the connecting with the wedding bands and just in the sliding. I mean, I'm using the MCGR as a driving machine. Uh, in the, my convex road is sliding road or gliding road, but my concave road is the MCGR with the, uh, the distraction of the MCGR, I'm seeing some reciprocal uh, sliding on the uh, convexity. Anyway, this is the, my uh, the preference for SMA patients. For definitive fusion uh, SMA, I'm still following Mike, Mike Vitali's uh, suggestion. Uh, I'm just keeping one or two segments the lower thoracic and upper lumbar area for untouched, unfused, and to uh, keep the segments for further 
spine rasa and, uh, injection. This is the my policy for SMA. Uh, great information and perfect segue for this paper. Um, very interesting with uh, either the growth, quote unquote, friendly or the uh, sort of hybrid with a modified Shilla approach. In this paper, they actually describe a very large series of 59 SMA patients uh, with scoliosis. And they treated them with, they didn't use this term, but I would almost call it like a modified or a very long modern Lukey trolley um, sort of technique. Just like you said, they always went to the pelvis, um, but they stressed that it was totally fusionless. So it was claw hook constructs up at the top and then screws in the pelvis at the bottom. And then they would have rods going up and down with uh, connectors between the two rods with the idea that as the spine grew, it, the rods would slide past each other. And they found that in their five years of follow-up, no one in the surgery needed a definitive fusion. So it sounds like no one really had a bad decompensation like you would worry about with an unfused spine like this. Um, about half the patients needed a procedure to lengthen the rod. So they you know, weren't gliding as well as you would hope in theory. Um, and they were so happy with the technique that it actually became their standard of care for neuromuscular scoliosis in their department. Um, so I'd love to hear your sort of thoughts on that kind of construct. You know, uh, these neuromuscular curves without a definitive fusion gives me a little bit of the the orthopedic heebie-jeebies, but um, you, your experience and wisdom there would certainly be more valuable than mine. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, I didn't read your uh, this article you mentioned, uh, but I have some concern about uh, the techniques as preferred by the authors. This is the great technique for some SMA, but I believe in the epical control, it's very important if the deformity is really big uh, in terms of size. Because in the past, in the, not, not last 10, 15 years, I'm using the technique I already mentioned briefly uh, a minute ago. But in the past, I had some cases, some SMA or congenital muscular dystrophy type, I mean, low-tone neuromuscular disease. I just simply put in the anchor top and the anchor bottom looks like a dollar sign and my spine so far from the my road. Uh, in those cases, uh, the my road acts roads acts as the pattern uh, from the back and the spine. Uh, they rotate around the my red and the my road works like on the crankshaft machine. That's why uh, I don't like to keep the spine far from my uh, foundation, I mean, longitudinal member of my rod. If the spine is easily comes to the midline with the simple distraction, I'm happy with this. Great answer. Um, all right, one more article for me for the lightning round. This one is uh, out of Min Coker's group up in uh, Boston Children's. It's coming out this month in JPO. And we are taking a uh, pretty large divergence from the uh, spine topic. And this one's actually about discoid menisci. Um, as I think we all know, in the olden days, a discoid meniscus would just be taken out, total meniscectomy, found out it leads to arthritis and total knee replacement. So now we tried to try to preserve them, but there hasn't been great evidence on how that turns out. So in this study, the authors looked back at a bunch of old patients with at least 15 years of follow-up, usually more like 20, and they were able to get in touch with uh, about a quarter of these old patients. And they found that most were doing well, two-thirds were satisfied with their surgery, none had needed a total knee replacement or a total meniscectomy at that point, uh, which is a major takeaway. And then uh, I think the, the second med major takeaway is um, how many needed a revision surgery for the discoid meniscus. So I, I would have thought a lot might go on to degeneration or a total meniscectomy, which was not the case, but half of them actually needed a revision surgery for the discoid just to better saucerize it or repair a tear in it or something like that. So uh, some valuable information for, for counseling parents really great survival rate, uh, average 20-year follow-up for these menisc uh, meniscoid-preserving uh, surgeries for discoid menisci. Yeah, I, I think that um, the reason I chose that is I think that any 
pediatric article with 20 year follow-up is impressive in its own right. And obviously that's a population you've got to follow until they're 50 or 60 to see how it compares to the, uh, you know, a typical knee without a discoid meniscus, but um, encouraging results so far. Um, Josh, do you have any articles you want to highlight? Yeah, I'll go, go through a couple quick ones here. So keeping some international flavor, um, this one is October of this year out of China. And it's interesting. I don't do any tumor work, um, but an interesting technique that I'd be interested to get your guys' thoughts on. So what they did is they followed patients who primarily had osteosarcoma, who had long segment uh, resections of femur or tibia, and then did reconstruction with what they're calling pasteurized tumor bone. So essentially taking the tumor bone and, and treating it and then replanting it with an associated vascularized fibular graft. So for the femur, they'd use the, the contral or the ipsilateral um, fibula. For the tibia, they'd use a contralateral fibula down the middle of this pasteurized tumor bone, which is quite interesting. And what they showed was, was good outcome. So if you guys had a guess, so they had... 14 patients or 14 bones, what do you think the healing time was at these junctions? So you have two junctions, obviously. So um, you've got 28 host graft junctions between these 14 patients. What do you think the fusion rate was and how much time did it take to get fusion at those proximal and distal sections? Craig, what do you think? They're all kids, right? Yep. Fusion rate's 100. <laughs> and um, uh, three months average. Okay, Carter, what do you think? Um, I was thinking uh, three months also, so I will go with uh, two and a half months to, to make it interesting. Okay. And uh, I'm going to go 98% fusion. All right, so you're both a little bit eager on your fusion rates with these prefibular graphs. So it was uh, six months, so just over six months for both ends to be fused, and they had great fusion rates, as you both guessed, um, and showed higher higher kind of biologic activity on bone skin as well. So an interesting technique to provide both some structure with the vascularized fibular graft, as well as some good biologic activity with the um, pasteurized tumor bone. So an interesting technique for all you tumor docs out there. If you haven't seen this technique, it's a, it's a good thought out of China. And Josh, before you jump to your next article, I'm just going to take a second to uh, say farewell. I've got to run to the operating room. I guess that's the downside of these morning sessions. If we keep doing more of them, <laughs> um, but Dr. Yuzichi, it's, it's been a, a pleasure and an honor to meet you. Um, and Craig and Josh, it is always a pleasure and honor to work with you two future SRS presidents. So That's thank right. you, everyone. Have a great day. Thank Good you. Luck. Thank you. This next study is out of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester coming out this, this month's JPO. Um, talking about arthroplasty survivorship, at least short term, five years is what follow-up they had in arthroplasty, hip arthroplasty in children with open triradiates. So either of you would like to weigh in what your thoughts are. Is that something that should be drastically avoided or is that something that can have some reliable in-growth and longevity of doing a hip arthroplasty in a kid with open triradiates? Yeah, I don't have any uh, clue about the longevity of uh, the hip arthroplasty as a developed component if, the, if uh, implanted uh, the during the triradiate cartilage open period. But uh, I refer some of my patients to my arthroplastic colleagues, as some of them are still too young. We had a very, very long discussion because this is something new for our field. I mean, they put in the total hip arthroplasty in a 13 year old girl or boy, it's something so strange. But if you don't have any chance, and especially dysplasia or bilateral involved other rheumatoid problems, you don't have any chance even in the uh, arthrodesis. And the kids wants to go to school, kids wants to be active. This is the only way to uh, give them some motion uh, with the arthroplasty. Anyway, uh, this is interesting. I'll, I'll read in the Mayo's uh, paper as well. This is probably the biggest series and the Yeah, correct. And what they showed was, was good outcomes. Again, it's, it's a limited series, just 13 hips in 12 patients and five and a half years follow-up. But they had one patient who had acetabular component loosening and hip instability, two different episodes, but only that one patient who had any instability loosening, no infection rates, no um, 
thromboembolic events, no secondary um, revisions for wear or other failure reasons. So short series with moderate outcomes at five and a half years, but um, they would suggest that having open triradiate certainly isn't a contraindication if a kid needs a hip replacement. I would, um, I would challenge anyone else who's doing this. I want to see a picture of the triradiate cartilage after it's been reamed. I would suspect that there is quite a bit of cancellous bone, um, you know, in which you can get purchased. It should not differ much from another arthroplasty in a young patient, but I also just think that that'd be a uh, very fantastic, a fantastic view. <laughs> I'd like to see that picture. So send it to us if anyone's got it. Yeah, that'd be perfect. All right. And last question, Dr. Izichi, do you use antibiotics when you are pinning supracondylar humeral fractures? First of all, I have to say, I don't have anywhere busy uh, emergency practice now. I'm not seeing too many supracondylar in my daily life uh, nowadays, but I'm probably from the old school. Uh, even in the percutaneous uh, pinning, I, I still believe this is the surgery, small or big, as minimally invasive or maximally invasive, whatever. I still use the prophylactic antibiotics, but I believe I don't need to give in the 24 hours, I mean, before uh, dosage. But before the surgery, before the anesthesia induction, uh, I like to uh, give it at least one uh, shot, uh, first generation cyclosuppress, even close, even percutaneous. Sure. And what about you, Craig? I agree. I, I do it. Um, I just think that risk benefit I have seen since site infections, and that's despite giving antibiotics. I don't know if they prevent it. You could argue that. But um, I've not seen an adverse reaction to routine antibiotics um, in that situation. And so uh, I just see it as something to do. You're putting a pin through a joint into the bone. Um, it seems like a reasonable, uh, reasonable thing. All right. Well, the group out of Minnesota, this is a three, a three study center group, um, Minneapolis, Mayo, and Gillette over a thousand patients that they looked at retrospectively, most of which got antibiotics. Um, but those that did not get antibiotics actually had a lower rate of infection. So 2.0% infection versus 2.5% infection in the patients who actually got antibiotics. And all patients who required return to the operating room for surgical debridement were all in the antibiotic group. So certainly not a definitive answer to the question, but a pretty big study group that would suggest that antibiotics probably aren't doing a whole lot um, in supracondylar pinning. Sounds like some good baseline data to start a randomized control trial. Awesome. Well, Dr. Yazici, this has been really fabulous to have you on. So thank you very much. If that's all you got, I just wanted to highlight a few things on J. Posna. Um, we don't necessarily need to review them, but um, uh, one topic that is particularly important is um, diversity and inclusion. And there are two articles on there from the JEDI committee, which Posna started this year. Um, one talks about stereotype threat, which is just an awareness that um, some poor performance may confirm a negative stereotype about a group. Um, so if you're a, 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 a um, marginalized group and there's a negative stereotype, um, it's a preoccupation you might have while you're trying to perform your role in the operating room or on a rotation, and that can tend to lead to worse performance. So it's something that we all need to be uh, cognizant about. Um, and then there's another article highlighting um, the uh, lack of diversity within orthopedics. And um, sadly, we're one of the least diverse medical subspecialties, 8% uh, women, 15% ethnic or racial minorities. Um, pediatric orthopedics overall is better than general orthopedics, um, but still um, really uh, behind as compared to other specialties. And so I just wanted our audience to kind of think about that as they're uh, doing uh, rotations with visiting medical students and doing residency interviews and think about what you can do to make sure these marginalized groups feel included um, and make them know that they, they do have a home in orthopedics, even if they don't see a lot of people that look like them uh, here. And then I actually wanted to ask our guest, Dr. Yazici, I'm not really aware of what the, um, what the racial diversity is within uh, within Turkey, and if this is something that is a problem that that you have similar to America, or whether it's something that's not thought of at all because it's so um, uh, it's just taken for granted that there is quite a bit of diversity. And I also just wanted to highlight um, how inclusive I think your presidency at SRS has been, 
you know, with inclusion of, um, uh, you know, obviously having an international face to that presidency and uh, the continuing efforts to involve, you know, neurosurgery and the scoliosis society, um, and just your, your general thoughts on the differences and diversity over in Turkey. I'll start uh, with the SRS because it's the easy part. And as SRS, as you said, it's not, we are not in the perfect condition, but probably we are better than many other societies. But in the last year during my presidency, we built, we implemented the new task force, diversity, inclusive, uh, inclusivity and equity task force, as the, including the, uh, the very diverse group of the members working together and they already sent to the board of directors the preliminary report but I'm, we are hoping to get in the final report of this task force in the middle of the next year. And the, but I must say, I, I was not in the, I was not in the, the first OUS um, president of SRS. I was the second after the Ken Chang from mm -hmm. Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. But I am the uh, the near your. I mean close to Europe, but not really uh, complete the European, close to Middle East, but not complete the Middle Eastern. And the, I believe uh, from the diversity perspective, I'm a really good example uh, to reach the top of the, the society. I mean, this society allow me to, uh, the, I mean, step uh, to get to all the steps up to the top. But also, it's another interesting, and now is in the current president of SRS, Chris Shaffrey, is coming from neurosurgical origin. And the vice president of uh, the SRS is Serena, who who's going to be, uh, she's going to be is in the first female president of, um, I mean, society. One OUS, one neurosurgeons, one um, the woman, and the uh, the the other guys is coming after Serena, is again, is in Marinus. Uh, full from the Netherlands, Holland as a full European. Anyway, I mean the in the SRS uh, we had uh, the black, uh, I mean African American. The president is born in America, but also born in Africa, but immigrates uh, to America. We had in the the president from uh, the Iran, Behbudakpania from Egypt, Kamal Ibrahim. SRS is a really good uh, the. Uh, position, but of course, there is a lot of rooms to improvement. But uh, regarding the, uh, the gender issue, uh, amongst the medical students in, in, in Turkey, general in Turkey, uh, more than half of them female. Uh, yeah. Probably 60% of our medical students female and 40%, maybe 55, 45. But in orthopedics, uh, unfortunately, uh, the female population is not uh, big enough as United States as Europe. Uh, I don't know exact number, but probably less than 100 in total orthopedic women orthopedic surgeon in Turkey mm -hmm. amongst more than uh, close to 4,000 4, orthopedic surgeons. It's very low uh, percentage, but uh, the Pediatrics, pediatrics, and the dermatology, or other—I mean, internal medicine—the women dominance is significant. But in orthopedics, we have very few number of female colleagues. Yeah, this is. It sounds like pretty similar challenges to here. Well, um, we all need to make sure that those those marginalized groups feel welcome and see that they uh, this is a specialty for them and. As you pointed out, there's lots of past SRS presidents and um, higher ups who are, are a testament to the success you can have in this field. Um, so that is all we have planned for today. Dr. Yazici, thank you so much. This is a, a groundbreaking episode for us um, in a lot of ways. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great honor. I really enjoyed to chat you guys. We never met in person before, but I'm hoping in the next POSNA, IPOS, or even SRS meeting. We will meet in person and continue this uh, chat after that. Again, thank you for having me. This was a really great uh, the honor to me. Hopefully, uh, it will be listened by many colleagues around the world. I'm not uh, 
too optimistic to get a record. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if we have some few, I'll be happy. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty optimistic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Josh, okay. thanks for sticking it out to the end. Uh, well, thanks yeah. to Carter and Julia for their uh, support and contributions and also to, um, uh, to the board at POSNA for their support. Um, thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful night. Thank you to all our listeners. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate thanks. it. Thanks. Okay, Pleasure meeting Bye. you. Okay. We'll, have, we'll have to catch up at a meeting next time. Hopefully. Thank you. I'll all right, take care. Thank you.